this morning in the 24th verse, and I will read through the 34th verse, Matthew 6, 24 through 34. This is the living Word of God. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore... Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen. Pray with me. Father, with joy and expectation, we come to the proclamation of your word. Because in your word, we hear the voice of our God and Father, we hear the voice of our perfect King and Savior. We receive the ministry of your active Holy Spirit. And this is our longing today, to hear from you, to meet with you, even as Tom shared, to go to God, to go to the cross, to be ministered unto by you. Lord, work, please. This is our desire. If if you do not work, All of this is for nothing. So come, come in power, manifest yourself to us, meet us right where we are as you so graciously do time and time again, and help your people. Give faith where it's needed, give insight where it's needed, give rebuke where it's needed, give help and hope where it's needed. Speak, O Lord, we pray, in Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, the theme this morning, in rather plain language, is trust God and stop thinking like the world. And I'm drawing that right out of the text for the most part. Trust God and stop thinking like the world. I I read a larger passage 
um, 11 verses in all, as I often do, so you can more clearly understand the broader context of what Jesus at this point is saying in the midst of this Sermon on the Mount. This morning, I want to focus on just a small portion of what I read. We will be considering together the truth of verse 33, which I will read again. Many of you maybe have it memorized, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The opening word of the verse indicates something. It's a conjunction. It's a little three-letter word, but, and it necessitates that we step back at least a few verses into the text to see the point that Jesus is making in this contrasting statement. He says, but seek first. Why is that conjunction there? Look with me, if you will, at verses 31 and 32, the more immediate context, where Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, these are things that anxious people might say, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Anxiety is a killer in our day. I think we can all relate to this. There's simply no shortage of things that you and I can choose to be anxious about, to fret over, to worry with. And Jesus, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, is addressing this sin of anxiety. He's addressed a number of sins up until this point in the sermon. Um, and here he spends a significant amount of time addressing the sin of anxiety. And it is a sin. For clarity's sake, let me define the term anxiety in case you were wondering. And to make sure we're on the same page. Anxiety is a feeling of worry or fear or nervousness or unease over uncertain outcomes. You with me? Worry, fear, uncertain, or unease over uncertain outcomes. In our world today, even in the church today, I have seen it time and time again, even in my own heart at times, people try to minimize anxiety's sinfulness as though you could trust God and still be anxious. As though they are compatible responses in the midst of uncertain times. Well, they are not compatible you can't trust God resting in his sovereign goodwill and pleasure and at the same time be anxious. They are not compatible. What Jesus says in our text, what he demands of us in our text is trust. Trust. We'll get more into that when we consider seeking first the kingdom of God. Also in the text, three times over to be precise... Anxiety is denounced. Trust God, reject anxiety. That's the simple focus of the context here in Matthew 6. Jesus is saying in loud and clear fashion, do not be anxious about the necessities of life, about the length of life, or even what comes tomorrow. Do not be anxious about those things. In a sense, he's saying, do not be anxious about the small things, your next meal and where it's coming from. And don't be anxious about the big things, 
your final meal and when it's coming. Because in all of your anxiety and all of your worry, you can't even add one hour to your life. There's the overarching context. And then Jesus, in the next verse, verse 32, drives his argument home with this. For the Gentiles seek after these things. Ouch. Thinking and behaving like Gentiles. Well, I am one, but a redeemed one. And so I shouldn't behave like one, but rather behave like a Christian. Thinking and behaving like Gentiles. This is what our Lord says. This is not his apostle. This is directly from the mouth of the meek and humble Jesus. That stings, and it should. By Gentiles, what does Jesus mean? He means those, according to Ephesians 2.12, that have no hope and are without God in this world. That's the Gentiles. That is the others. It was Israel, the people of God, the community of God, and then others. The Gentiles in Jesus' day, they were the pagans of his day. The heathen, we might say, the people of the world. The Gentiles had no Bible. They had no lineage of patriarchs and prophets that they could point back to where the truth of God was being passed down from generation to generation. Now Jesus is then saying that if I am guilty of being anxious about these matters of food and drink and clothing, if, if I am worried about my life in this world and the things that I am lacking day to day, if, if these anxieties are present within me, then I am really living and behaving as an unbeliever, a worldly person. You know, you can always tell what someone's philosophy of life is by the way they live, even by the way they speak or by the way they react to difficult circumstances in life. It, it just comes out of us. We are not smart enough or controlled enough by nature to keep these things hidden and tucked away. This is why times of crisis often expose people for who they really are. You, you then see the real person. People will always betray exactly who they are by what they say when their guard is down. When they're under the gun. Our views and our perspectives, they leak out in the way that we react, in the way that we talk in those difficult moments. So again I say, if you're living a life weighed down by worry, you are living like a practical atheist, a spiritually dead person, embracing a low view or even no view of God. And even churches today are filled with the anxious. They, they know and can articulate the gospel. They could, they could answer your questions in an interview for church membership. They have an intellectual understanding of Bible doctrine. But their speech and their behavior is that of this world. All is natural, even carnal about them. Nothing supernatural. They may talk about a big God and big grace. But all the while they harbor big anxieties within is that you? Is that you? Let me ask you just a series of diagnostic questions that you can chew on in the hours, days, weeks to come. 
How do you react in times of crisis? Because what's on the inside comes out, right? How do you react to bad news? To a household object being broken by that precious little one? To the loss of a loved one? To struggling to stay above water financially? Do you engage such difficulties and uncertainties with truth and trust? With scripture, with the promises of God? Do you lean into his everlasting arms or do you fall back onto the old habits of worry and fear? I think these are good diagnostic questions to ask yourself. If you are here as one dominated by anxiety and fear, the call this morning, I hope, is crystal clear to step out of the darkness of unbelief and into the gospel light of trusting in this glorious Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. Dear ones, hear Christ this morning. Hear this authoritative word. Letters in red, maybe some of you still have one of those Bibles. Hear the voice of Christ, the resurrected Lord of all. Because these are his words, and not merely his words preached as he sat there on that mountainside to that large group of people 2,000 years ago, but his word for us right here and right now. I believe he who wears the crown deserves to have my ears and your ears, my heart and your heart this morning. So hear this great and gracious king speaking to you. As he says, do not be anxious. As he says, do not behave like an unbeliever. But rather trust me. Seek me. And he says one more thing before we come to verse 33, doesn't he? He says, and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Isn't that beautiful and remarkable? and precious, and full of comfort. I mean, we could camp out here in morning devotions, morning after morning after morning. Oh, God, you, you know my needs. What a way to start the day. Oh, oh God, you, you see what I need today, and your storehouses are full of provision. You know. We, we see this throughout Scripture. I was thinking of Exodus 2 this morning. That, that God saw the, the, the needs of the Israelites as they were being oppressed by this new Pharaoh. He saw, the text says, and, and he remembered, the text says, and he knew. And what did he do but raise up Moses to be a deliverer for his people? God cares. That's what Jesus is saying here. Before I know my needs, the Lord Jesus knows my needs. This is how provision, time and time again in the life of Christians all over the globe, this is how provision arrives just at the right time. And we could tell abundant stories of this. So many of us could share story after story after story. Because he knows. He knows my needs. It is nothing for the Lord right this moment to set in motion some provision for your need that may come 34 days from now. And just at the right time, the doorbell rings, the phone rings, and provision is there. 
my, my dear grandmother, husband to my dear with the Lord grandfather-in-law, Mary Ann Ray, she could tell you a number of stories when they had nothing, how the Lord came through just in the nick of time. This is how God works because he knows our need. What more? What more do you need to know before you will trust him? I mean really trust him. What, what more does he have to say to you? What more does he have to prove out? How many more times does he have to come through at just the right time before you really trust him? This text this morning is a call to trust in the living God. To trust him. Look at it again. But seek first. Here we come to 33. An authoritative command. This point of climax within this portion of Christ's sermon. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Before we dig into this exhortation, I want to give some shape briefly to what this phrase, kingdom of God, means. This is a strong theme in our New Testament. It builds in the old right into the new, but in the new alone, it's referenced more than a hundred times. Beginning with Jesus preaching about its arrival. Jesus is going to be very frank that the kingdom of God, it's here, it's among you. So when reading your New Testament and you see phrases like kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, that's a favorite of Matthew. He is the only author in the New Testament that uses kingdom of heaven and he uses it almost three dozen times. When you see these phrases and this talk about the kingdom, I want you to think along these lines. It's rather simple. We all know what a kingdom looks like. Well, the kingdom represents Christ's kingship, his rule over his people. And it's, it's not the only kingdom. There is a kingdom of darkness. These two are contrary to one another, as you might imagine, operating uh, even now uh, against each other. But Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is the redeemed people of Christ, those happily living as regenerate sons and daughters under his direction, his protection, his provision, and his government. Christ's kingdom is not of this world, though it operates in this world. And Christ's kingdom will be a perpetual kingdom where he as king will rule and reign with and over his happy people forever and ever. This is the kingdom that every Christian labors for and loves Christ and his people. That's the simplicity of it. Now, let's dig into the text. I want to consider this verse in three parts. Number one, our pursuit. Number two, our priority. Number three, God's promise. Our pursuit, our priority, and God's promise. Think with me then of Christ's command to seek. And I'll be up front. This is where we will spend most of the time this morning. So don't be afraid when I'm still talking about seeking the Lord and you're wondering, when is this going to wrap up? Seek. One word, but seek. This is our pursuit. 
the Greek verb signifies the kind of seeking that involves becoming so absorbed in the search for the object. It's all-encompassing, we might say today. This, this seeking involves a diligent and untiring and rigorous effort. It's, it's an earnest seeking that's got an intensity about it. it. It looks and feels something like this by way of illustration. Again, Jesus is speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who, on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's that kind of intensity. He wants this pearl of great price, so he's seeking for it. And when he finds it, he's willing to impoverish himself to have it, whatever it takes. That kind of seeking. That's what Jesus intends us to see in that single four-letter word. Its, its influence is comprehensive. Meaning, it saturates every sphere of our lives. It saturates our routines. It, it saturates every segment of every day that we live. Our, our waking thoughts at 6 a.m. or 8 a.m., whatever time you're getting up out of that bed, our waking thoughts begin again with this seeking. It's all-consuming. It's this trusting, seeking love to Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, excuse me, that controls us. You see, the Christian is captivated by this one great object, this pearl of great price. And in all of our duties, and all of our responsibilities, in all of our chores, and all of our errands, in all of our vocational time, we are seeking this kingdom. Our eye is fixated on this Redeemer King. Our heart is singing His songs. Our heart is longing for His presence. And, and yes, we're sitting in front of the laptop. And yes, we're in a meeting. But our heart, our heart is yearning for this King and His kingdom. This is what it means to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This is the kind of seeking that Christ commends again and again in Scripture. And here commands it. This is no mere commendation, saints, as though it were optional. This is the mark of a Christian life. In, in chapter 5, he's already told us what Christianity looks like in those sweet nine Beatitudes, hasn't he? This is what Christians look like. Well, this is what Christians look like. They, they don't seek the stuff of the world. They seek Christ and His kingdom. They're not intending to build their own kingdom. They're longing and praying, chapter 6, for His kingdom to come. This is what Christianity looks like. And a life spent on this one thing is the life that is best spent. This kind of seeking is what Christ is contrasting with the stuff that the Gentiles are seeking. And by the way, from 32 to 33, the same Greek root word is used. The Gentiles are seeking after this stuff. My people, king to his subjects, is saying, I want you to seek after my stuff, my kingdom, 
my righteousness. Because the fact is, you will either seek after stuff like the Gentiles do, or you will seek after God's kingdom and righteousness. It's, it's God's kingdom or your kingdom. There is no third option. You're in one of the other camps right now. If we pursue the stuff, we miss Christ and his kingdom. If we pursue the stuff, we deny Christ's kingship and affirm our own. If we pursue the stuff, we are no different than an unbeliever. That's what he's telling us in the text. And I know that sounds hard. But just because it sounds hard doesn't mean it's true. And the one who is truth is the one who is speaking. So think this morning. Consider your own life. Consider the own, your own motivations down there in your heart. And, and pray that you would really hear and be shaped by, even transformed by, Christ's word to you today. Because the fact is, anxieties are never cured by getting more. Did you know that? They may ebb and flow up one day, down the next, but anxieties are never mortified by more stuff and bigger bank account balances. Never. And remember, the wealthy have their own anxieties too. The cure then, the cure according to this text is Christ, His kingdom, His righteousness, our hot pursuit of Him. You want to get rid of anxieties once and for all? Give yourself to seeking Christ. Give yourself to His priorities. And anxieties begin to fade away. One more thing worth noting. The necessities of life that the text addresses food, drink, clothing, these things, they're just means to an end. They're, they're not the aim, they're, they're means to bring us to our aim. So never be guilty of assigning first important status to secondary, though albeit necessary, things. Keep first things first by seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness. And then leave it to God to care for you and your needs. This is what the text is communicating. Instead of caring for them ourselves, instead of burdening our Christian race with this stuff, we are to deposit into His lap every single anxiety, every single burden, believing that He cares for you. This is how we run well when we're not encumbered by the cares and the stuff of this life. Oh, saints, we should live with such confidence under Christ as King. Such confidence. I know you feel weak. I feel it too. And I'm okay with that because He is strong. And my confidence is in Him. If, if I was relying upon myself to do you any good this morning, we might as well pack up and go home. But Christ, He's so strong. He has so much to give. So live with confidence. 
under his leadership and rule. You really can do all things through Christ because he's a good and perfect king. And then be so saturated with a kingdom mind that you are regularly about his kingdom business. So much so that you pillow your head at night with this deep assurance that this good and gracious king, he's got all those necessities in order. He can do it. I don't know how the bills are going to get paid. I don't know how this son of mine's ever going to be converted. I don't know how I'm ever going to grow an ounce in grace, but I'm going to pillow my head with confidence in my king and assurance that he can do it. He won't let us down. He will hold us fast. And, and let me clarify. The text is not saying that everybody should be in full-time ministry. Y'all get that, right? Maybe somebody here doesn't get that. So I'll, I'll briefly clarify. Moms, this, this is to you, and you'll never be a pastor. Thanks be to God. It's just the way he did it. Dads, this, this is to you in front of the computer eight or nine hours a day. To the electricians among us, one whom I love very much, the rest of you I love. This is for you when you're thinking, boy, I hope I don't electrocute myself today. This is, this is pursuing God's kingdom in the everyday things that we're about. And the electrician that wires the panel that he wires for the glory of God. And he does so as a city set on a hill, shining like the light of Jesus Christ. It's going to look really different than the unbelieving man that wires that panel. That panel may last 20 years just like the Christian's panel. But the impact, the influence, the light, the truth, the warmth of it all, this is how we promote the kingdom of God in the earth. And moms can do that as much as the seven-year-old convert can do that, as much as the bedridden 77-year-old convert can do that. I just wanted to clarify. Here's how this seeking works itself out in our lives. The nearer you and I live to Christ, the less aware we are of the things of this life. Did you hear that? There's a song that goes something like, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's, that's all. The nearer you and I live to Christ, the dimmer the cares, the things, the stuff of this life will become to us. This is our pursuit. Now for our priority. You see it in the text, don't you? But seek first. There it is, another single word that we could examine, but, but seek first. It seems as though Christ only adds first to strengthen his command, which is already really strong. He, he says, seek first, and by, by first he means that you make this matter of first importance. It's not first on your list of things to do. No, it is preeminently important every hour you live, with every breath you take. That's, that's what he means by first. It, its priority flows out of its preeminence, and it is ever preeminent. 
It is ever first. It is ever utmost. It is ever foremost. This is the great pursuit of the Christian. To seek God first. Again, think pearl of great price kind of seeking. Will you, dear brother, dear sister, spend your life and your resources all your days seeking after this great object? Is that your aim? If you're in Christ, there's some flame, though it may ebb and flow, and this is your aim. You, you know it. You wake up tomorrow morning, and you know your purpose. It's one great object that I must seek after. He's first. I am second. I think I've heard that somewhere. And when you find it, as I already said, you give everything up to have it. And it's almost like the Christian life is in the experiential realm, that over and over and over again. Oh, I, I, I found him again. I, I came to my Lord. My Lord came to me again. And I'm ready to give up everything all over again if I could but have him. If I could but see his kingdom come. If I could but participate in his kingdom and righteousness you see, this is the clarity that we need from a command like this. Be because if Christ, here's clarity for you, if Christ isn't the greatest, isn't the first, isn't the foremost pursuit of your life, ask yourself if you even know him. That's clarity that the text gives. You, you see, your concern for the glory of God and the coming or the expansion of His kingdom in, in everything. I mean every situation and every activity of your life. This is the overarching and the overriding emphasis. It trumps all other concerns. And makes the things of this earth grow really dim. To become increasingly concerned with what God concerns himself with. Those high righteous concerns will drive out every lesser concern about food and clothing and the rest. That the cares of this life, the cares surrounding this temporary passing away world, they will take a back seat to your pursuit of God's kingdom and his righteousness. And any time a competing pursuit surfaces in your life, you suddenly prefer what is eternal over what is temporary and fading away. What, what glorifies God over what gratifies you in the moment. Again, God's kingdom priorities. Serving his church, sharing the gospel, loving our enemies, having our speech seasoned with grace, educating our kids and nurturing them in the Lord, speaking the truth to a neighbor, helping the weak, and on and on we could go. These are the dominating priorities of our life because our heart's cry is thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So, let Christ who is first and best, have your first and best. Give to Christ your waking thoughts, the first fruits of your day, because he's worthy of it.
our pursuit, our priority, God's promise. Here we are, the last part of the verse, and all these things will be added to you. As our minds are set on God's affairs, saints, we have His promise to manage our affairs. Isn't that something? Isn't that another way that we could paraphrase this text? Dear Christian, set your mind on the affairs of God. He's already set His mind on your affairs. Everything is in order. I think of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 3 in the early days of his kingship over Israel. None of us will ever be a king, but this is what pursuing God's kingdom looks like as a king. It's quite the illustration of this truth, really. Let's not get into what happened in the latter days of Solomon. 1 Kings 3, picking up in verse 5, at Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. So give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Listen to what God says now to Solomon. Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. The very thing he asked for. And then a whole bunch more. I give you also what you have not asked for. Both riches and honor. So that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Isn't this the heartbeat of Matthew 6.33? If, if we would seek first his kingdom, he'll, he'll throw in the rest. That's the language of it. He'll, he'll just throw it in there. No big deal. If we'll seek God's kingdom, if we'll make God's priorities our priorities, his loves our loves, his delights our delights, he will take care of us, saints. That's what the text is saying. Christ's authoritative command is followed by Christ's unbreakable promise. But can we flip this around for a minute? Because I want you to see something else. I want you to glean the blessing of Matthew 6.33 from another angle. God has committed himself to us. And providing for our necessities, the food, the clothing, the drink, the stuff of life, so that we are then liberated to live committed lives to Him. I don't know if you've ever read it that way or not. It's just reversing the order. So we would read it something like this. Sorry. All these things 
will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Be, be liberated. Be, be set free from the encumbrances of these things. Don't, don't worry with the little stuff of life. I've got it all covered, God says to you and me. Instead, devote yourself to my kingdom, to my righteousness, as a good and faithful servant. Let me take these weights off of you so that you can run your race well to the end. Be free from your anxieties so you can be free in your service to me. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 2, set your minds. The King James says, or affections. On things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And this is what Christ is saying. Put your trust fully in me, wholeheartedly in me. I can bear the weight of that responsibility. And then, and only then, will you, dear Christian, really begin to live when your trust is totally in the Lord. And don't forget, this is much more than an invitation to do so. It is His kingly command that you do so. In preparation for the sermon this week, I, I couldn't help but thinking about The Hiding Place. And I know there's many here that have read The Hiding Place, Corey Tinboom's book, published within the last century. And there's just this scene, maybe for many of us that have read it, it's, it's, it's the glorious scene, I don't know. For me, it's one of them. When Corey writes about her and Betsy's arrival at Ravensbrook, the concentration camp, and, and here's what she says, and yes, it's, it's lengthy, just bear with me. The, the deck, Corey writes, the decking above their heads where they were laying, was too close to let us sit up. We lay back, struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. We could hear the women who had arrived with us all finding their places. Suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. We scrambled across the intervening platforms, heads low to avoid another bump. We dropped down to the aisle and edged our way to a patch of light. Here, another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us. Show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly, it took me a second to realize Betsy was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer. Even before we asked, as he always does. In our Bible reading this morning, where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight and then drew the Bible from its pouch. It was First Thessalonians, I said. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. It seemed written expressly to Ravensbrook. 
Go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all we read. Oh, yes. And to one another and to all, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now. We can thank God for every single thing about these new barracks. I stared at her and then around at the dark, foul-aired room. Such as, I said, such as being here together. I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered the camp. Thank you for all the women here in this room who will meet you in the pages of this book. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for the very crowded place. Since we're packed so close, many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas and for the fleas. This was too much. Betsy, there's no way God could ever make me grateful for the fleas. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so there we stood between piers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time, I was sure Betsy was wrong. Weeks later... When Corey arrived back at the barracks one evening, Betsy's eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, sister, Corey told her. You know, we've never understood, Corey, why we had so much freedom in this big room, Betsy said, referring to the part of the barracks where the sleeping platforms were. Well, I figured it out. This afternoon, there was confusion in my knitting group about sock sizes, so we asked the supervisor to come and settle in, but she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, neither would the guards. And you know why. Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice as she exclaimed, because of the fleas. That's what she said. The guard said, the place is crawling with fleas. You, you see, saints... This is what obedience to Christ's command looks like. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. This is what it looks like in extreme circumstances, brothers and sisters. Ours most likely are not nearly so extreme. Betsy refused to be anxious. And she refused to complain. And Corey eventually learned the lesson herself. A Godward perspective, saints. An unflinching trust. A true seeking after Christ's kingdom. This is the only way to really live. And that's what Christ commands in the text this morning. Pray with me. Father, there there is a reality that you have been working among us. 
And as pastors, we see that much of the work is preparatory. Yes, you are doing good to this congregation, and we've seen glorious things. We felt deep encouragements. But Lord, the reality is that you're preparing us for more. To take more ground, to fight difficult battles, to stand for truth in opposition to a world that hates the truth. And I trust you would take and use this, this command to be committed to seeking Christ in his kingdom and that you would further us in preparation for days to come that we would be ready and willing to stand. Lord, help. Write this truth on our heart. Convict us and grant repentance where it is needed. And build us up in the most holy faith. For Jesus' sake, amen.